Legends Podcast. I am your host, Andrew Applebaum. My guest today is Jamie Gollenbeck. Jamie is the Managing Director of Tax and Estate Planning with CIBC in Toronto, where he delivers integrated financial planning and advisory solutions to their clients. He earned his CPA, or Chartered Professional Accountant designation, both in Ontario and in Illinois. Jamie is a past recipient of CPA Ontario's Award of Distinction, which honors those CPAs for their leadership and achievements in their professional, community, and personal lives. Jamie is quoted frequently in the national media as an expert on taxation. He writes a weekly column called Tax Expert in the National Post, and has appeared on a guest as a guest on BNN, CTV News, CBC's The National, as well as a recurring personal finance guest spot on The Marilyn Dennis Show. Jamie also teaches an MBA course in personal finance at the Schulich School of Business at York University in Toronto. Welcome, Jamie. Thank you for joining me. Frankly, with all that going on, I am honored that you made time for this podcast, especially during what I presume is your busiest time period, tax season. Where are you and how are you? Well, first of all, thanks for having me, Andrew. I'm uh, located here in North Toronto, and uh, we are still working from home, believe it or not, uh, two years later with the pandemic, although the banks are slowly moving back. So we had our first day downtown in our new CIBC Square headquarters just last week, which was wow. sort of early March. And uh, we are expected to start going there one day a week, starting late March, and then eventually transitioning ultimately there on a more flexible schedule, uh, you know, over the months ahead. So we're excited to do that. But no, I'm at home, been at home, spare bedroom, uh, two years now. <laughs> and is that was that a good thing or a bad thing? People have expressed it was great to work in their pajamas and getting lunch from the fridge. And others said, I can't wait to get out of my house again. How was the transition for you? Uh, well, let's put it this way, Andrew. It's a good thing that we're not doing a video cast today. So uh, I, I love working from home. It's been great. I do miss the people. I miss the buzz of downtown. I was right at, you know, really the quarter of King University for years and a lot of buzz, you know, lunches and breakfasts and going to meetings and meeting with clients in person. You know, I miss all that part, but I got to tell you, it's a lot easier when your commute is about 15 feet uh, from your master bedroom to the spare bedroom and you've got everything at home and you've got two screens and you've got a TV with BNN on in the background and you've got the fridge downstairs and it's just very convenient. I even got a treadmill during the pandemic so I can do workouts you know, where there's a break during the day. So you know what? This is easy. No commuting, no TTC, uh, but I do miss the downtown. It was fun to go down land last week for the first time and uh, I'm looking forward to getting back. Um, maybe not on a full-time basis, but at least one or two days a week for sure. And when you talk about the building you've gone to, is this the brand new CIBC Tower right across from Scotiabank Arena? Absolutely. And of course, as an avid uh, sports fan, both Raptors and Leafs, uh, interestingly, my office, which will be on the 12th floor of the new CIBC Square, actually overlooks Gate 3, which is my entrance to Scotiabank Arena, where I regularly go uh, to both live sports and concerts. So I couldn't be more than, I don't know, 75 feet away. I could leave just before the game and no parking, nothing, uh, and just walk over. So this is, for me, an ideal location. I couldn't have picked a better spot for our new office. 
you may be back in the office more than you uh, intended based on <laughs> especially that. Especially on game days. Especially on game day. You have your hands in so many pots. What are you working on these days? What takes up your time? So we're doing a whole bunch of stuff. I mean, obviously, this is tax season. We're here in March of 2022, and uh, we're just bombarded. Now, I don't do any personal returns other than family members. But uh, that being said, my role at CIBC as a head of our tax group uh, on the private wealth side means that we also deal with numerous questions uh, from clients and financial advisors on all things tax related. So I'd say right now is probably our busiest month, March and April, the two busiest months of the year. We just finished our RSP season, which ended of course on March the 1st. Now we're right into tax season. So, you know, we're getting all kinds of questions from all kinds of people. Plus it doesn't, you know, help my situation to write that weekly column that's syndicated across all post media newspapers in Canada, because every weekend when it appears on Saturday, I get another dozen or two questions uh, on tax. And mm-hmm. uh, depending on the topic, uh, those all, we try to answer all of those uh, within a few days. So it is a busy time. Well, I want to take you back, Jamie, to get your mind off taxes for a little. I want to take you all the way back to where it started. Where were you born and what was your upbringing? Well, I was born here in Toronto. So uh, I was born in Mount Sinai Hospital in the late 60s. Uh, I, I always joke around that I was born just after or rather just before the moon landing, uh, mm-hmm. although I don't necessarily remember that, uh, but I was born just before that. I uh, grew up in Toronto uh, my whole life. My uh, dad was also from Toronto. My mom was from Long Island. Uh, they met while they were at university in, uh, in Michigan and Ann Arbor, and, um, and then they moved back to Toronto. And, um, you know, I was born here and uh, I've lived here my whole life other than uh, a couple of uh, times when I went to university at McGill University, I did a commerce degree there. That was sort of in the late 80s, early 90s. And then I did have one year sabbatical where my parents took us to London, England in grade 11. And they wow. both were on sabbatical there. And uh, so I did live abroad for a year as well. But other than that, I've been in Toronto. And uh, literally, I'm in sort of North Toronto area, sort of Avenue and Lawrence. And uh, I'm probably... Uh, living four blocks away from the house that I grew up in. So I uh, love the neighborhood. A lot of my friends are still my same friends from high school. And uh, we all still keep in touch uh, on a weekly basis. Think global, act local. What, <laughs> what high school were you at? I went to chat uh, okay. in Toronto, sort of North Toronto. Now going away for school to Montreal, how was Montreal, especially as a student? It must have been fantastic. Well, I had a great time. So I knew I always wanted to go away from home. No offense if my parents are listening, but I think they encouraged <laughs> that. Uh, so I always wanted to go away from home from university. And then, you know, I looked at all the different universities. And uh, the truth is, I was very urban. I wanted to be in a big city. I always enjoyed exploring Toronto as a kid. I would take the subway downtown, you know, back when I was like 11 or 12 years old, down to the Eden Center and go to the record stores back when they had records at you yes. know, Sam's and A&A Records and peruse those on the weekend. So I just love big city living. Uh, and Montreal was a big city. Uh, and I wanted to be in a big city. So that was important to me, as opposed to some of the universities and sort of smaller towns that are more university towns. So a big city was really important to me. And uh, I looked at Vancouver, UBC. Um, it was a bit far away. So Montreal was convenient. I took the train regularly back and forth uh, from Toronto. Uh, Via rail was the easy way to do it. They even had an express train at one point, four mm-hmm. hours, which was very convenient to Union Station. Uh, I loved it. Uh, we live right downtown. I was too old. I was only I was 19 when I went to first year at McGill. I was considered to be too old for residence. I mm. didn't get into residence. 
So I never got that dorm experience. I rented a, um, a, um, an apartment with a friend of mine from Toronto. And then every year we found different people and we had different roommates uh, for the four years. And in fact, this weekend, believe it or not, coincidentally, I'm actually having a reunion brunch with my three roommates that I've tracked down, uh, one of them, which I've seen from time to time, the other two I haven't seen in 20 years, but we're going for brunch on Sunday uh, to have a, a fourth year McGill 1992 reunion brunch. So that would be a lot of fun. How fabulous is that? That's great. Yeah. The, this podcast, as you know, is very Toronto focused, but my wife is originally from Montreal and I'd be remiss if I didn't ask if you have some favorite college hangouts in Montreal, either eating or just where you like to hang out well we had a bunch of stuff so i love montreal i live right downtown obviously the the big place to go as a student as a starving student really because uh you know we didn't have a lot of money then i only had a summer job and but really um as a student i went to peel pub that was the place to go one dollar beers uh, was the deal there uh, so that was popular. Thursday nights, we always went to Crescent Street as well uh, mm-hmm. for a bit, bit of higher end. There was a place called DJs that we went to and Thursdays that we went to. Um, I like jazz. Uh, there was a place, I believe it was called Upstairs, even though it was Downstairs. Maybe it was called Downstairs. It was upstairs. Anyway, we went there regularly. It was on Bishop Street. That was a regular hangout. Um, and um, uh, so, we, yeah, we, we took advantage of all the culture of Montreal. We love Montreal bagels. I'm still a fan of the Montreal bagels. And, yes. Uh, course we would go to the all 24 hour the, the big you know whether it was St. Viator's or it was uh, Fairmont Bagel uh, you know sometimes after a late night of uh, the bar in Montreal we would head over for some hot bagels at you know 3 a.m. because the bars were open much later in Montreal than they were yes. certainly in Toronto so a lot of fun plus the drinking age was 18 I was 19 it wasn't an but, issue, but, too know. old as you already mentioned so yeah, exactly a lot of fun Montreal was great and then now when I go back it's fun it's fun to walk around the McGill campus and uh, been there for work a bunch of times back to Montreal. And it's always fun to go there, you know, as a, as a sort of a business person right now uh, and stay in the hotels that we only walk past on the way to or from uh, McGill. You know, I don't know if you remember this, there was a Peel pub in Toronto for a brief period of time. I think it was right on King. And I don't know the story why it disappeared, but I guess it had to be authentic. You had to go to it when you're in Montreal. Yeah, absolutely. So I do remember vaguely there was one in Toronto. I don't think it worked out that well in the end of the day. It really needed to be near a university. It was a university crowd. It was it was cheap. Uh, the beer, I thought the beer was fine. A lot of people thought it was watered down. I don't, I don't know if there's any truth to that, mm-hmm. um, but we had a lot of fun there. And it was, it was, it was really not expensive. <laughs> it was a lot of fun. <laughs> now, after McGill, where'd you go from there? So after Miguel, I landed a job. I had, uh, you know, I went to very traditional accounting and finance route. I wanted to, uh, you know, get into business at one point, but uh, ultimately it was my dad. My dad's a physician and uh, he always encouraged me to get a profession first before going into business. So he encouraged me. And uh, so I decided that I would do that Uh, rather than going right into business with a commerce degree. I specialized in accounting and finance. Um, I went out and did my CA at the time, the Chartered Accountancy designation. Mm-hmm. And to do that, you had to apply uh, to be, uh, I guess, article or whatever it was called back then, uh, one of the accounting firms. So I applied to all the big accounting firms. In the end, I had six job offers. Uh, four were Montreal, two were in Toronto. And um, at the end of the day, I just decided that I wanted to move back to Toronto. And the primary reason is that ultimately, if I was going to be in Montreal, I had to learn French. 
mm-hmm. which was would have been a good thing because I could have used the French. Um, I did take some French in, in McGill. I never got up to, you know, literacy uh, in French, I have basic understanding, but not great. But I would have had to like sort of go to like a small town like Shakutami for like six weeks in the summer, paid for by the firm, and really get an intensive French program. So even though one certainly can operate uh, in Montreal knowing only English, ultimately there's obviously a huge value to learning French as well. So that was really a decision. Did mm-hmm. I really want to spend enormous amount of effort and time uh, learning that second language? Uh, or was it easier to really join my friends and family back in Toronto? That was the decision I made. Plus, the added bonus was that at the time, the Toronto salaries were actually 25% higher. So mm. even at the same firm in downtown Montreal, downtown Toronto, I guess because of the cost of living, uh, you could make 25% more money um, back. Uh, back. This is back in the early 90s. So mm. came back to Toronto. Uh, I never looked back. Home is where the heart is. Who would you end up starting your career with in Toronto? Well, I started originally with uh, the accounting firm of Coopers and Librand, which has now morphed into PwC. So I stayed there uh, for a couple of years and I really wanted to get into tax because when I was there, I was sort of the general rotation program. And if you wanted, you could choose a specialty. I sort of interviewed for the tax group, but they weren't taking people and I didn't get in. So I actually answered an ad in the Globe and Mail for Deloitte's mm-hmm. and Deloitte's was looking for tax people. And I said, sure, why not? And I applied and I left. Uh, even before I had my uh, full CA designation, but I passed the exams. Uh, and then I went over to Deloitte, did a couple of years of tax there. And then it was called by a headhunter to join uh, Trimark Mutual Funds at the time, uh, which later became Invesco. And uh, and I was there for for quite a long time. I was there for 12 years. And, and then I got recruited over to CIBC. So that's sort of my career path. Really had four uh, sort of jobs. And I've been with CIBC now, uh, I guess, for going on 14 years. You are a CPA in Illinois. How did that come about and why would that get done by the average person who's already got a designation here in Canada? Yeah, so so the, the idea, there was a number of uh, thinking behind that. So certainly back in the mid-90s, they introduced what was called a reciprocity exam, where eventually if you were willing to study and take the necessary courses without any extra schooling, you could challenge the, the U.S. CPA exam. Um, so it was done. You had to fly down to Illinois. Why Illinois? Everyone asked me. It's because it's the only state that we knew of that didn't have an annual uh, continuing professional education requirement. So you could pass the exam and pay your dues every year and, and get a U.S. CPA. You so the idea to was to add credibility uh, and also the knowledge uh, on advising on, on U.S. matters. So uh, and this has come in very handy, to be honest with you, because uh, I've maintained that CPA I wrote the challenge exam in 1996. I passed it after doing a, quite a bit of studying that summer. The firm, of course, paid for all of it, which was great. Um, but the truth is that almost every day we deal with U.S. tax issues. Uh, we deal with cross-border issues on a regular basis. Uh, people ask us all kinds of questions about U.S. people uh, living in Canada, uh, Canadians going to the U.S., Canadians buying U.S. property. So just to have that expertise, that professionalism, to really understand uh, the U.S. tax side of things has come in very, very valuable. Of course, I keep up to date because the stuff I learned in 96 is not that relevant now. Uh, but just having that credential. Um, you know, when you're talking to clients saying, look, he's, I'm licensed both in the Canada and the U.S. on both sides of the border, you know, keeping up those fees. I get the publications from the U.S. CPA Society. Again, I always believe in education. Education has always been important. Both my parents have multiple post-secondary degrees. Uh, and so to get that additional 
you know, uh, qualification, both in the U.S., was important uh, just from a credential, also from a purely educational perspective. Jamie, on that note, keeping up to speed, the definition of an expert is someone who stays up to date. And taxation is an area in which certainly the only constant is change. How do you keep up? And you've further made it complicated. How do you keep up in two different countries? Yeah, well, we keep up. I mean, every day, it's an hour or two a day, honestly, of just keeping up. It's actually part of my job. So I, I mentioned earlier, I write that weekly column for the national paper. Uh, that's 52 columns a week if I don't take any uh, time off. Plus, I write for three other publications once a month. So you, know, you got to come up with 50 to 100 topics a year. Uh, to be able to come up with new stuff, you, you got to stay on top of what's happening. The good news is that there's no shortage of stuff happening. Uh, mm-hmm. We pay for a professional subscription, both in Canada and in the U.S., for tax software, uh, not software that does your return. We pay for that, too. But we also pay for the database software. This gives us access to every single thing that happens that's new in Canada and the U.S. on the tax perspective. So every new case that gets decided, we read. We don't read the full case. We read the headline and we read three lines. And is this relevant? I file that away. And then if I have time, I'll read that case later in the week or write about it for a column. Uh, We also get notified on any new legislation. We just have the introduction just a few days ago of the new vehicle and airplane and boat luxury tax. So again, there is a whole topic in and of itself. So, you know, every day, at seven o'clock, five days a week during the week, we get a daily email with a summary of every new uh, legislation, every new case, uh, every CRA view, comment, opinion on almost every single topic. Same thing in the US. Uh, again, I don't follow the US as closely, but we have a database that sends us on a daily basis updates on new articles, new developments on the US side. Again, most of it is not relevant only as it affects to Canadians, because obviously, primarily, our audience is Canadians with some cross borders. So uh, mm-hmm. I'd say I spend at least an hour or two a day reading case law, reading uh, new developments, really staying on top of it. Um, I hate to be surprised by stuff. It does mm-hmm. happen occasionally. There was some legislation released a few weeks ago on a Friday afternoon. I didn't check my email till Monday. Uh, and then I was getting questions on something which I hadn't seen. Um, so again, that, that could be a you know, throw you a bit off for a few days, but we generally try to stay on top of everything. And because we pay access to all these databases, they're all searchable. So if someone mentions a term, not only can you know you and I go on Google, mm-hmm. but I can go into this private database that we pay for and right away see every comment, every case on a particular topic so that we have all the information we need to give the right advice to clients. Keeps you on your toes, obviously. This regular column that you write for the National Post, how did that come about? It's actually an interesting story. So so years ago, and I've been writing now for about 20 years, right? Approximately 20 years. So years ago, the only game in town, the only tax column in town, I think, primarily was the Globe and Mail, Tim Sesnick, who I know quite well, and nice guy. And we chat from time to time about issues, but he's been writing the Globe and Mail tax column for over 20 years. And, uh, you know, I was a new subscriber to the National Post. I enjoyed the sort of the I think my more of a lighter approach maybe of the, the National Post, a sort mm-hmm. of sense of humor, their editorial stuff. And uh, I was reading their call, their, their paper on a regular basis. They had a great personal finance columnist, Jonathan Shevro. And, you know, I thought they needed a tax columnist. And, 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 and I, so basically I, I found out who the editor was uh, of the National of the Financial Post specifically. It was Terry Corcoran. And I said, you know, Terry, let's go for breakfast. I've got an idea for you. I'd love to write your tax column. I'm going to do it for free. 
Um, and I took him out for breakfast. We went to the Four Seasons Hotel back when it was at Avenue. Where I thought, what was the nicest place I could take him? And yeah. we went to the Four Seasons at uh, Avenue in Bloor. And uh, right on the corner there, the old Four Seasons, I guess. And mm-hmm. we went for bref- breakfast. We had a great breakfast. We hit it off. We talked about all kinds of policy issues. I said, let me suggest to you a column. I'd love to write a regular column for you guys. No charge. You know, I just want to do it. Um, and he says, you know what? Sure. You know, send me a couple things. And if I like it, I'll run it. So, you know, I found some funny cases. I think the first one, you know, this is a long time ago, almost 25 years ago, maybe. Um, I sent him a column about a, a courier uh, who was writing off his food, his extra food uh, as a business expense. And, okay. and he won the case uh, in terms of, you know, basically that was the fuel he was using a bike courier. So I thought that was kind of humorous. I wrote about that in the paper. He liked the column. And I did about two or three of these kind of freelance type columns. And he says, you know what, Jamie, great idea. Why don't you write the weekly column? And it's moved, you know, back and forth from Tuesday to Friday. And about a number of years ago, it landed on Saturday, the weekend paper, and the rest is history. So I try never to miss a week other than if if I'm on vacation and we shall pre-read it because it's just the opportunity to share, you know, the information. Uh, My firm loves it. They fully endorse it. When I joined CIBC 14 years ago, Mm -hmm. I even got into my contract that I'd be allowed to write the column. And the nice thing about the CIBC is they trust me. Uh, completely independent oversight. They don't review the column. They don't even know about it until it's actually live on the website. And then they see it afterwards. So I have full editorial discretion. Luckily, over the years, uh, I really haven't really gotten into trouble other than maybe once or twice, which I've learned from that. Uh, Once was, you know, I used to use the people's names uh, when I read about their cases. It is public. You can go on the tax court website and find all the information. But I thought at the end of the day, why do I have to embarrass people that do dumb things on their tax returns? Mm-hmm. I'm not out to gain. I'm not a you know pure journalist. So probably a number of years ago when a client was very embarrassed about their personal story because they were you know, doing some things that maybe they shouldn't have been doing, I thought at the end of the day, there's no point in embarrassing anybody. So probably many years ago, I removed the names from the cases. And I just say a taxpayer, an Ontario taxpayer, you know, I give some general information without identifying them. So that's one lesson that I've learned over the years, but, you know, on the whole, uh, you know, it's been, it's been, it's been good. I often have a colleague review the column before it goes live, uh, but that's just been a great experience. It really keeps me on top. And then my friends talk about it. They see me on the weekend. <laughs> they say, Oh, I read your column and yeah. this applies to me. This doesn't, you know, and things like that. So that's been a lot of fun. And you talk about yet independence, Jamie, from your employer and their trust that you could write these pieces. How about independence or editorial independence from the National Post itself? Yeah, well, they have a great editorial team. And I I tell you, they're they're just great. So they do an edit. I usually submit Wednesday night or Thursday morning. I have a couple of I've worked with, you know, seven or eight editors over the 20 years I've been writing. The editor I'm currently working with, Andy, is a great guy. Uh, He's better than me, way better than me on editorial. Um, He will basically edit the whole thing and then send me the final draft. And if I spot anything, sometimes I spot a word or two that's wrong. uh, Then we'll just switch it. We go back and forth, you know, once or twice. And then he runs it. And I really value the editorial opinion because he just changes things in such a smart way that I never would have thought of. Even though I've written thousands of columns over 20 years, literally thousands of columns, um, he always adds something, you know, uh, a little bit different in terms of, you know, the way he's writing it. He cuts words. He's great. So I think the editorial process is excellent. And we've had debates over words back and forth. And, and, and we've always agreed. In every scenario, 
uh, sometimes there there is a problem where you know they make a change uh, and I don't spot it and it runs and uh, luckily it usually runs first online before it goes into the physical paper. Okay. And sometimes I can spot it and I can say, you know what? I didn't catch this word, but this word is not really accurate. Can you switch it? They switch it usually within 10 minutes online and then it gets corrected for the paper on Saturday. So that's the nice thing about having online is that we can correct it. Sometimes a reader will read it online on Thursday as soon as it goes up and then email me something. I'm like, oh, you're right. I hadn't thought of that. And we can actually change it before it goes to print. So that, that's rare. But it does happen, and I really value the editorial uh, board at the Post. They're experts, far better than me, and they do a great job improving the story. Well, here's something else that comes with being online. The feedback loop you get with your readers. Have you found that overall to be positive, negative, neutral? Overall, it's positive. Um, There are some very cranky people out there. You know, (laughs) this is like the 5% that are just angry in general. Um, very angry about anything and uh, think I pandered too much to the government occasionally and I should be more anti-government. I mean, this okay. is not my role. I'm not you know, giving an opinion piece for the most part. I'm trying to relay facts and trying to give information. Um, most of the feedback is extremely positive. Uh, most of it is follow-up questions. A lot of the time I get feedback saying, oh, that's exactly my scenario. Thanks for writing it. Um, recently, a lot of people tell me that they don't miss my column. Uh, every single week, uh, they, they make sure they never miss a column. They read it religiously. Um, sometimes it applies. Sometimes it doesn't apply. But generally speaking, you know, it depends. Like, I was worried when I don't get any feedback at all. Sometimes yes. I'll work, you know, six, seven hours on a column, you know, trying to, like, bring up other cases and, and tie it back to other stories I've written. Like, I'll tell my wife sometimes, you know, I spend six, seven hours on a column and I get nothing. Like, no emails at all. Mm-hmm. which I don't understand because there it is in the paper and I, it's online and surely it's there and I get nothing. And then sometimes I write a column like this past week, which I did in two hours on the principal residence exemption. Very, very simple. Wasn't even a case. It was just a couple of letters that went out to taxpayers. I must be counting now over three dozen emails mm-hmm. uh, that I've received because it's just such a hot topic, the principal residence exemption. And yet I didn't write anything controversial and I did it very quickly and yet it generated more response than anything I've written in months. So you just never know uh, what's going to you know, really pique the interest uh, of the average person. But the feedback has been very, very valuable. And it always gives me new story ideas. Yeah. In fact, this week, I'm going to do a follow-up to the principal residence based on purely the reader feedback. We've chosen six of the best emails of the 36 that I've received. And we're going to respond to those. And there's a whole nother column. Well, doesn't it just prove it? Uh, it's better to hear whether it's good or bad. It's better to hear back rather than nothing. Absolutely. Now, TV, you got into various TV appearances. How do you enjoy doing those? Yeah, those are fun too. So right now, uh, recently, it's been limited to uh, BNN, although occasionally there's some, you know, the odd interview with CTV News or City TV. Um, years ago, um, like when, when it first started, the Marilyn Dennis show, that was actually a paid sponsorship that, I mean, you wouldn't know it, but CIBC was the exclusive financial advertiser of the Maryland Dennis Show. So for that right, because we paid for the right to be the only advertiser, we got editorial content. So once a month, I would walk over to the studios, and we'd film the live segment on a different personal finance topic. It was six or seven minutes in length. 
So that was really exciting. I got a lot of exposure there. I didn't know that many people watch TV at 10 a.m. That being said, it also ran at night occasionally. So I haven't done that in years, yet people still remember it, which is quite amazing. Uh, But most of the TV now is, uh, so a couple of Fridays ago, I did BNN's Talking Tax, where for 30 minutes you're on the hot seat and people call in and ask questions. So uh, you got to be really on your toes, certainly on the TV. The TV I enjoy, um, again, I've been doing it from home uh, since COVID began. So it's a lot less uh, interesting than going to the studio with all the lights and the camera and, and the yeah. microphone and the makeup. They always could makeup for you. <laughs> and the guys wore makeup, but apparently they do. And uh, so I always got four or five minutes of makeup and white powder and all that stuff. So that was fun. But yeah, TV's fun. You really have to be on your toes. Uh, I do live radio as well. Um, sometimes it's taped in advance, but uh, yeah, those are fun. Well, when I announced that you'd be appearing on this podcast, it generated a lot of activity on my social media. And so here's one using the Twitter handle balls, 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 no bears. Brian L asks what Jamie enjoyed more appearing on BNN or the Maryland Dennis show. That's a funny question. So I think the Maryland Dennis show was more fun to be honest with you, because, you know, at one point I was on a show and the guest was Dr. Oz. You and (laughs) And Dr. Oz. The three of us were all were all on together, and that was kind of exciting. And you got to meet all the celebrities in the green room sometimes in the, the background. And, uh, you know, it was just it was a live studio audience, right? And it was done live. It was like live, live. It wasn't live to tape or anything. It, mm-hmm. it was a real thing. And so it was exciting. And the studio audience would applaud and every time you came in. And uh, it was exciting. There was a lot of adrenaline there. BNN, great place to go. Uh, very quiet. You walk in there. It's silent. Everyone's just typing away on computers. You go up on the screen, you speak for five minutes, you're done and you walk out. So, you know, it's a different experience totally. But uh, interestingly enough, they're both in the same physical space. Mm. The studio in the front is the Maryland Dennis. The studio in the back is the Van Inn, both in the old city TV building right on Queen Street, that iconic building with that. I think they used to have an automobile sticking out of it. I think they might have moved that to Dundas Square. It just came up that that whole building's being uh, sold or redeveloped, but it's interesting that these two very different shows, you just walk across the hall, it sounds like. Exactly. That's I'm never there at the same time for the same show, but uh, yes, they literally, they're two studios right down the hall from each other, both owned, I think it's by CTV. Based on your TV appearances, where is the strangest place that you have been recognized? Yeah, it's funny. Um, I've been recognized a lot uh, because it's not just on TV. I also do a lot of public speaking. So I've actually been to every single province and territory in Canada, including Nunavut, uh, all of it for work. So uh, I've been every single city in Canada that's larger than maybe 25,000 people. So I've spoken literally, I used to speak 100 times a year. Uh, all across Canada on behalf of the bank, uh, public speaking. I also spoke when I was at Trimark Mutual Funds on roadshows all across Canada on tax planning. Um, so I've been recognized everywhere. I've been recognized on the airplane by the uh, by the flight attendants who recognize me and tell me they read the column. I've been recognized by a pilot once uh, on one of the planes. Uh, I recognized uh, in lobby of hotels, uh, just all over. Like I've been walking down downtown Regina and people will say, hey, hi, Jamie. And Mm -hmm. I'm like, hi, and I pretend I know them. I don't really recognize everyone. But, you know, I do a lot of work with financial advisors. There's estimated to be like 50,000 financial advisors in Canada. And chances are most of them over my 25-year career in financial services have probably seen me speak at some point. 
whether it's a financial advisory event in Regina or whether it is a you know massive conference somewhere or even uh, on TV. So uh, yeah, I get recognized everywhere. I get recognized in the airport all the time. Uh, people always say hi. Uh, it's kind of fun. <laughs> and anywhere geographically that uh, perhaps uh, shows get televised or re- recast somewhere outside of Canada, has anyone recognize you when you're on vacation or you're it, yeah it has happened but those have always been been recognized by canadians that were also on vacation <laughs> gotcha so it's happened uh, like in miami of course it's happened where someone recognized me like an advisor was also there with his family he recognized me happened in vegas uh once where someone recognized me because they were down on some kind of you know uh some kind of stag party and i was there for fun and they recognized me there so it has happened in new york it's happened as well i was in the theater once and someone recognized me from two rows behind me just from toronto from work so yeah that happens kind of randomly but yeah i I, my, my stuff wouldn't be televised anywhere in the u.s obviously you are a big time road warrior you're out on the road i can only assume that nobody's work life got more affected by the COVID restrictions than someone like yourself. Yeah, it was dramatic. It was literally dramatic. Like, uh, you know, both life and personal and and work uh, changed dramatically. Like on the day, I think it was March the 12th, Thursday, March the 12th, that we were told uh, the whole world was shutting down. I had tickets that night for Leafs game. I was Mm -hmm. supposed to walk right from my office to the game. And I called my son. I said, look, it's canceled. The whole thing is canceled. The NHL was canceled and, you know, we didn't go. I just came straight home and I never went back uh, just suddenly. Right. Yep. Um, I had all kinds of trips booked, uh, both personally and corporately. I, I travel. I'm a big music fan. So I travel all over to see concerts and big Dave Matthews fan. And I fly regularly for, for stuff like that. And uh, for work, I traveled extensively all over Canada. We'd fly to Vancouver for presentation, come back the next day, do a lunch in Winnipeg, meet a client, come back the next day. Uh, you know, all that stuff. Uh, so dramatically from from literally flying not every week but maybe two weeks a month not all five days like maybe i'd be on a plane two to four times a month uh, and maybe have 30 to 40 nights a year of a hotel because the trips are usually one night maximum maybe two Mm -hmm. um, from to zero literally to zero uh, zero business travel at all it's just starting now we have a business trip uh, plan one for april uh, and then two for may uh, so it's just starting now. We're starting with sort of Montreal, Ottawa, Winnipeg, uh, Windsor. That's all being booked right now, just starting to open up now in sort of April 2022. But for two years, uh, nowhere. Uh, really, it just all ground to a halt. Well, we're all certainly excited to get back out again. It sounds like none more than you. The other listener comment that came to me, this came under the Twitter handle, I love equities. Column M asks, Jamie, about his musical talents, specifically on the piano. Can you tell us what that means? <laughs> That's a funny story. So so I actually I do play the piano. I've started playing the piano uh, really when I was seven years old. I still have the Steinway baby grand piano that my grandparents had wow. uh, in their home in Long Island. Uh, and then they moved to Florida. They shipped it to my house in Toronto. And that's where I took piano lessons. And when my parents downsized to a condo, uh, they gave it to me because I was the only one who had room for it. 
in my living room and I still play on it. I played it last night. Um, you know, right now I just mess around. Obviously I'm fully classical trained. I trained at the Royal Conservatory of Music. I passed my grade eight exam. I took all my theory up to then. Then I stopped lessons right away. And then I just played for fun. So I, you know, I used to play the piano, uh, you know, at summer camp. I used to play it for friends. Uh, I moved all into playing like pop and jazz and stuff like that. I can sight read music. Uh, just with, you know, melody and chords and sort of play pretty quickly, play Broadway tunes and things like that. I have had occasion to play it a few times at work. And it's kind of a funny story. So uh, on one occasion, for sure, I remember that uh, uh, I was being flown down. This is back with Trimark Investments. We had all these great conferences down in Cancun, Mexico, and we had it in uh, um, like just all over at Hawaii. And anyway, the conference organizers were always trying to do something different. So on one particular conference that I attended, the theme of the conference was they were going to do an evening of the David Letterman show. So instead okay. of just having me speak, uh, they would have me, uh, you know, be being interviewed by a David Letterman type on tax. And I said, you know, it'd be fun if we also pretended like that I was Paul Schaefer, like the piano keyboard guy. And they said, sure, great idea. So they rented a keyboard for this production. And uh, I played a couple of songs on the piano uh, before I switched into the chair and started talking tax. The other time that's happened is often I speak in a hotel ballroom uh, to clients of CIBC. And uh, occasionally there is a piano that's not locked. Uh, that's sort of, just sort of sitting in the reception as the clients come in. Usually it's just sitting there, you know, in the corner. So occasionally I will just go in and start playing the piano while the clients are, you know, getting ready for the webinar or not the webinar, actually the seminar in yeah. person next door in the ballroom. And I just be, keep playing and uh, just casually because I can just sort of play off the top of my head and the people are drinking and it's background. Uh, and then it's time for me to speak. So I just stop playing the piano and I go up on stage. And, and, and I remember once someone's like, hey, wait a minute, that's the piano guy. He's, he's the speaker. And uh, so that was kind of fun. So I've done that on occasions. And I remember just another great story was, you know, on, on some of my many trips, you know, I was a regular uh, traveler and I would stay at the Fairmont chain and I would have, okay. you know, status at the Fairmont. And sometimes I'd be upgraded to their best suite. Sometimes it was the presidential suite. Sometimes it was the royal suite. Like you never knew. Sometimes mm-hmm. it's just a regular room. But once it, I believe it was in the Winnipeg uh, Fairmont Hotel, there is a suite there with a grand piano. And uh, just coincidentally, I got that suite. And then I said to the guys who were all just in regular rooms, because we would travel as a team, I said, guys, you got to come up to my room. <laughs> and uh, and sure enough, uh, they came in, they saw this grand piano. And we sat there for an hour just drinking. We had a dining room and then the suite and, and spent a whole hour there after our you know show at night, uh, after our you know seminar for the clients, just sitting around playing the piano, having some drinks. It was a lot of fun. So uh, I, I enjoy music very much. And uh, that's kind of been an interesting way to mix some of that with work. It's a great way to integrate your professional and, and your, your pastimes. I think that would be great if I came to a seminar and the guy's on the piano in the uh, lobby and then suddenly he's leading the <laughs> seminar. I think that would be good. <laughs> you mentioned Dave Matthews. So obviously you're a live music guy. What concerts are memorable and what, what Toronto venues might be your favorites? Oh, I, I've seen hundreds of concerts. And in fact, I can even prove it because I've actually decided when I was 12 years old and went to my first concert, which was a Hall and Oates concert. It nice. was 19, I think it was 1982, maybe or 81s. I, I just actually found it online the other day. I actually found the set list. I actually kept all my ticket stubs. So I actually oh. have uh, binders, about 11 binders chronologically in order 
of every concert, every sporting event I've ever been to, um, all in order, all classified. So I have my original stub uh, from that 82 Hall & Oates concert. My dad took me because I think I was only like 12 years old. He didn't want me going alone. We went to Maple Leaf Gardens. Yes. And uh, we went up there and uh, <laughs> and it was great. I loved it. My dad didn't love it because he said he couldn't hear for the next three days. Uh, yeah, so sure. he said, next time you can go by yourself. So a few months later, I went to see Phil Collins on the Hello, I Must Be Going tour. And I yep. uh, went with some friends. He didn't go with me to that one. So uh, I try to see uh, a live music event almost every week, if I can, if not every other week, because um, I just love live music. I've traveled all over North America uh, for my favorite, uh, you know, favorite artists. Um, Dave Matthews is a, is a real big one. Um, I've probably seen him 50 times. Uh, the real peak for me in terms of live touring was Dave Matthews. Uh, if you know anything about him, uh, he does some acoustic shows a few times a year okay. with his partner, uh, Tim Reynolds. And um, so they've been having this event down in Cancun, Mexico, uh, three nights on the beach, three nights concert, uh, all acoustic set, uh, different every night. So finally, I convinced my wife to, to go down on this with me. And okay. uh, so we flew down literally three weeks before COVID uh, in February of 2020. And we went for three nights and we had three nights on the beach with Dave and Tim doing an acoustic 5,000 people. You had to buy the whole package with a hotel to be able to see the concert. So it was only people staying at the resort. It was a fantastic experience, 30 degrees on the beach, uh, two and a half hours each night of all the all the songs. So that was a lot of fun. And we try to go every summer. We, we travel around, usually by car, driving to upstate New York, going to outdoor venues, uh, see Dave Matthews, you know, four or five times a summer. Um, I'm also a big fan of, of jazz music. Um, I just came back. Finally, I started traveling again. And I'm a big fan of Pat Metheny, probably yes. the number one uh, jazz guitarist of all time. Uh, I think he's received more Grammy Awards than anyone in music, probably around 20 Grammy Awards. Huge fan of Pat Metheny. I flew down uh, just a few weeks ago to Austin, Texas, because he was doing some shows there. The Toronto shows were postponed until September, which I had tickets to. And uh, I bought tickets to all four shows, just flew down for two days uh, to see da- to see uh, Pat Metheny uh, do four sets at this small little venue in Austin, Texas. So I love live music. I love live theater. I travel to Broadway. I do that stuff as well. And so I, I really just love uh, that's a passion for me is going to live entertainment, live sports, and uh, just love all kinds of music. I've seen almost every band uh, that you could possibly name, focusing primarily on, you know, Dave Matthews and, and, and Pat Metheny, but also, you know, classic rock. I'll even enjoy classical. Uh, last Monday, I took my mom and we went to see Lang Lang, probably the okay. greatest, uh, greatest classical pianist of all time. Uh, I mean, maybe that's debatable, but he was outstanding <laughs> at, at Roy Thompson Hall. And so I've been to every venue in Toronto at Massey Hall. I was at the reopening concert of, of Gordon Lightfoot when he reopened Massey Hall just recently. What a beautiful yes. renovation they did there. My favorite venue probably is Kerner Hall uh, on Bloor Street, which yes. I go to at least seven or eight concerts a year. Uh, just some outstanding uh, concerts. They have a great jazz series. They do classical concerts there. That is a gorgeous venue. And I remember even like about 20 years ago when they opened the recital hall at the North York Center, when I used to work at Trimark, our Mm -hmm. offices were up there at sort of Young and Finch area, just sort of the Mel Lastman Square. There's a gorgeous hall there, the recital hall. And I've seen all kinds of legendary uh, people at that place as well. Unfortunately, I don't know what's happened to that. Hasn't seemed to uh, take on as much uh, as it used to. I think it's owned by the city right now. But Mm -hmm. we have some great venues in Toronto, and I've been to all of them. And uh, I also travel around and try to get some exclusive venues in other cities like 
Austin or New York and, and things like that. Very clearly, you are a guy who is thrilled with uh, this reopening of society. You're going to be back in your, uh, after such a long period away, you in particular are going to be so happy. Tax season, what you just mentioned every time you write an article, you get feedback, but especially at this time of the year, what's kind of the top question or top two questions that you've been getting in the last little while as everyone suddenly realizes the deadline is approaching and they need to get their act together. Yeah. So it's just really so random. It seems to be all over the place. We just got a couple of questions yesterday on working from home expenses, like the ability to deduct uh, your actual expenses of working from home. So explain to people that really depends on, on your personal situation. There's a simplified method of $2 a day. And then there's a detailed method where you got to keep all your receipts and really comes down to whether or not you're a homeowner, because as an owner, you cannot write off your mortgage principal or interest. So really, I mean, how much electricity and gas do you really use for five or 10% of your home? Whereas, or whereas if you're a renter, then obviously the rent can be really add up and that's the detailed method. So we get questions on that. Uh, we got a couple of questions of people are filling out their returns for us in Ontario and they're looking for that climate action incentive credit that they were getting a few hundred dollars and it's not there anymore. Mm. Of course, it's not there because they've converted that now to a new quarterly check that you're going to get. Uh, starting in July of, of 2022, and you're going to get it every quarter. So people are wondering, where is that? Did they take it away? How come I don't see it? So we've gotten that question about three times already in the last week as people go through their returns and uh, and they're not seeing that uh, additional credit. So you're obviously, not only are things changing all the time, but change with the times, meaning very specific in terms of what's going on today, working from home and things associated with climate change. I think another hot topic that like your take on is housing affordability in the GTA. Uh, I'm of a similar age to you and my daughter isn't of the age yet to worry about buying a house, but chief concern about parents our age is how will our kids be able to achieve the Canadian dream of home ownership in Toronto? Is it impossible or are we going to be okay? Well, I think it's impossible um, given the current demographics and given the current numbers um, for this to happen without like, you know, as we call it, the gift of the bank of mom and dad. Yeah. It's going to be very, very hard for kids to be able to buy a home, certainly in, in the GTA, in the Toronto area, um, at least anything decent, more than a small little one bedroom. But you know what? I, the solution, at least you know, my view, and people can differ on this, is that we become a nation of renters, uh, not necessarily across all of Canada. And there's nothing to be embarrassed about, about renting. If you go to the big international cities, you go to New York, uh, you know, big cities like New York and London, Hong Kong, they're renters. You know, I think 70% of Manhattan is renting, right? So, I mean, there's nothing to be ashamed of renting. I mean, you can show the financial numbers. And then instead, you take the additional savings that you would have put into your home and you invest it, whether it's an RSP or a TFSA or some other way of, uh, of investing for retirement. But basically, you take the extra cash flow. You know, people say, oh, renting is a waste of money. I disagree. Uh, I think renting can be a way to go. Uh, we're so fixated on, you know, cost of home ownership. We have to have a home. Everyone has to have a home. Every kid has to have a home. Uh, I think we need to get away from that. I think there's no shame in renting. I think that, uh, of course, rental affordability is, of course, another issue altogether. But again, mm -hmm. we need to we need to see more purpose-built rental for sure. 
Um, and we need to look at other solutions in terms of zoning and maybe more, uh, you know, housing rentals. Uh, maybe that will come up more. But, you know, I agree. I think it's a challenge right now, certainly with the price prices that we have right now in both Toronto and Vancouver, uh, to be able to afford a home. But ultimately, you look, if, if, if parents have built up equity and eventually they downsize, there will be cash flow that can be then transferred to the kids. I mean, that's the only way people are being able to buy these homes in Toronto right now, because who's got, you know, a million and a half, two million, three million dollars of cash, right? Like mm-hmm. nobody. So it's got to be from the parents and grandparents. But what a massive paradigm shift or change in attitude, because you hit it on the head. I, my parents, certainly, it's own or bust. They would be horrified to think that we've been planning to rent. And as you say, I guess we got to change the way we perceive it. And that it's a, it's a very viable alternative renting to owning no well no 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 one in new york city is embarrassed to rent i mean that's Mm -hmm. what even people making five hundred thousand dollars a year in new york city on wall street they're renting like they're paying a lot of rent but but they're renting right and they're not embarrassed about it because if they want to live in a home they're going to cost them four million dollars they don't have that kind of capital i don't know how uh much you keep up on this kind of stuff jamie but i wanted to ask you about cryptocurrencies if digital payments via the blockchain are here to stay, where are we heading with cryptocurrencies? Yeah, that's a good question. So I personally am not an investor in the stuff. I find it somewhat speculative and very you know, uncomfortable with that. Uh, certainly a lot of people differ. They believe it is a you know, long-term store of value. So that's certainly a legitimate uh, approach. Um, but I think the technology is excellent. Um, the technology in the blockchain, I've looked at it extensively. And uh, I think we'll start seeing it being used, uh, you know, maybe, maybe it'll be Canada, you know, that I know they're looking at it as well. Maybe we introduce a sort of fiat currency where Canada gets into the crypto market, um, absolutely using the blockchain technology. Um, you know, you have countries that you know using their own crypto, uh, you know, using that technology. I think that's viable, but I think there's all kinds of other uses uh, for blockchain, right, in terms of smart contracts. And I think we're just scratching the surface on what can be accomplished in this space. It's a very interesting space. Uh, We're obviously following it very carefully. Um, But right now, I think there's just too much um, sort of vagueness associated with some of the uh, cryptocurrency. And certainly if you wanna go ahead and invest in it, that's certainly your choice. I wouldn't put all my money in that. Mm -hmm. Uh, Some people are doing that, um, but you know, certainly if you wanna use a diversified portfolio, you have that option. I myself haven't done it. I'm very risk averse. I'm an accountant, I'm very conservative. Uh, I don't touch the stuff. Um, uh, just because I don't, I just don't know where it's going. I think it's just too new. Uh, but a lot of people feel very strongly about it, feel very, very differently about it. And, uh, you know, uh, maybe they'll be proven right at the end of the day. The technology is excellent. It's very, very interesting. The blockchain is something that we're all looking at. And I think that we've just really started to scratch the surface on what's possible there uh, using that technology underlying the cryptocurrency. Well, let me give you a related hot topic. NFTs, non-fungible tokens. Is this the asset of the future or the next scam? Yeah, I I wouldn't use the word scam, but it just it blows my mind when I saw that original story with Beepo and the art. And I just found it incomprehensible to me, Um, you know, um, because at the end of the day, as I try to explain it to the kids, like you don't even own the digital image. Like theoretically, you own, I guess, the original right to the but but there's nothing stopping anyone else from taking an identical image of it and Mm -hmm. keeping on their own computer. Like it's indistinguishable. Now, yes, you have the legal right to the original image. But again, I can also get a copy of that exact image in the same quality definition. So again, there is inherent value because people have associated inherent value with it. Mm-hmm. Just for me, it doesn't click. Like I don't really get it personally. Maybe it's just my bandwidth. It's not wide enough or broad mm-hmm. enough to understand this. 
Uh, but I personally don't understand it at all. Why would you want to own the original right to an original clip of a basketball player making a great shot when I can just go online and download that clip for my hard drive and watch it as many times as I want in the same quality? So I think I'm missing something. <laughs> well, join the party because I'm, I feel better just hearing you say that because I don't understand it at all. But I'm sure my 15 uh, year old is going to get me up to speed soon enough. I want to switch back to focus on Toronto as we get close to wrapping up here. Two favorite Toronto things to do or eat or be at. I'd like one. One of the two you give me can be well known. You know, everyone talks. We're going to go CN Tower. That's kind of obvious. But I'd like the second favorite Toronto thing to be more of a hidden gem. You got two for me, Jamie? Oh, it's been so long, right, since I've been out. <laughs> I'm trying to think of something that is a... Uh you know, unique or something that's different. Obviously, you know, obviously I love seeing live music and, uh, yeah. you know, I love seeing uh, going down even in the summer to see the uh, the Budweiser stage, right? Seeing the outdoor shows there. I mean, I think that's yep. worth doing on a nice summer night. You know, it's a, what a great thing to do. Um, you know, what, what would be unique? I mean, I don't know. I mean, or, it's a or even a nice favorite pockets. place to eat. That's a more of a hidden gem. Things to eat. Hmm. <laughs> think about I it. I stumped you, know? you here. Budweiser stage, I'm going to give you. That's a very favorite pastime of us very, very well known but if you come up with one uh, more secret or hidden gem okay well, i don't know if this is a secret but you know one of my secret loves that we used to have downtown at meetings but that i just discovered because they now sell it at uh, pusa terry's i'm not being endorsed for this in any way okay is the freshly baked chocolate chip cookies from le gourmand so okay. this is a, a beautiful patisserie at the corner of i think it's Spadina and queen and they actually now ship them to Pusateri's at Avenue and Lawrence, where I go. Those chocolate chip cookies, if you warm them up, they're melting in your mouth. They're absolutely decadent and they're absolutely outstanding. So uh, that's something that we've recently rediscovered. I haven't seen those since working down in the financial district when they used to bring it in occasionally for a special meeting or a group mm-hmm. event because um, it was downtown. But now that they're selling them over here at the local Pusateri's as a treat, uh, it is a $4 cookie. So it's not an everyday cookie but it is absolutely decadent. Well, there you go, folks. That is a non-paid endorsement for the excellent chocolate chip cookies, Le Gourmand. What are your plans, Jamie, for the remainder of 2022 and beyond? Yeah, well, again, look, we're excited. We're going to be moving back into our brand new CIBC Square. You know, I've been there already one day and we're going to start to move back there. That's going to be great. They're going to have some outdoor green space. It's right across from the Scotiabank Arena, which is, of course, convenient for me for a whole variety of reasons. So looking forward to getting back out there. I've already got four business trips planned. They're just uh, sort of one night overnight trips, you know, Mm -hmm. one to Ottawa, one to Montreal, one to Windsor, one to Winnipeg. So that'll be fun sort of getting back out there, flying around a bit, meeting people, meeting clients meaning financial advisors, sort of chatting about the future, things like that. So that's exciting. Um, and, and looking to really reconnect again and get back, uh, you know, back to normal or hopefully the, the COVID thing can, uh, you know, I'm triple vaxxed and uh, hopefully so sort of stay safe. Uh, and uh, I hope it doesn't uh, reemerge with some new variant, variant of concern, at least in the near future, we can get to enjoy it. I've, I'm also a, a Blue Jays fan. I've got season mm-hmm. tickets to the Jays and, and an opening weekends coming up on April 8th, 9th and 10th. I'm excited for that. Um, so, you know, going to games at night, that'll be a lot of fun, certainly in Toronto. And then, you know, we've just booked uh, two Dave Matthews trips in New Hampshire for the second <laughs> week in. of July to drive down there because we missed that for the last two years. We haven't gone anywhere. So, you know, looking forward to that. He is playing in Toronto, by the way, as well, which we're going to. Uh, but we've booked a couple of nights in New Hampshire 
uh, in July uh, to drive down there. We've been there before. It's beautifully. It's on a lake and uh, two outdoor shows. So looking forward to getting back to, you know, downtown work, downtown life, uh, and really enjoying all the great things that we have, especially in Toronto. Does, uh, like the Deadheads for the Grateful Dead, does Dave Matthews have a people that, is there a name for you guys? And do you run into Fan, super fans such as yourself. Oh, there, there. I'm nothing. I am honestly nothing. There, there are people that have been uh, to two, three hundred shows, and wow. in fact, I mean, not only that, there are websites that are dedicated to every show he's ever done, every song he's ever played, in every order. So you can actually go onto these. There's about three or two or three of these websites where you go online and you can type in a song and you'll see every time he's ever played the song in 25 years, what venue, what position it was, how long it was. And then there, he also allows people to tape the concerts. So okay. people are sharing online versions of the shows and videos. Like it's a very sharing community in Mexico. People are giving each other bracelets and it, yes, it is a bit of a cult. I'm not part of that cult. <laughs> I just enjoy the music part. I don't hang out with any other Dave Matthews types, uh, but we just love the music. Oh, that's good. I, one thing I want to circle back with you in a, in a while, Jamie, is now that you're traveling so much, what are you predicting about the handshake? Is it uh, a, a, something from the past or is the handshake? Oh, I, I'll tell back? you, it's already back. I met with <laughs> yeah. clients yesterday. We had an in-person meeting yesterday, two clients, sort of mid fifties. There was no hesitation. Everyone shook everyone's hand, all five people, no mm. masks at the meeting, no hesitation whatsoever. This is downtown Toronto in a corporate boardroom. You heard it here first. The handshake is back 2022. Jamie, it was awesome having you. I appreciate your time greatly. Where can we best follow or read or listen or watch Jamie Golenbeck? Well, the place to start is my website, just jamiegollenbeck.com. Obviously, you can follow me on LinkedIn or on Twitter. Again, the name is just Jamie Gollenbeck. Very easy to find. And of course, you can read me every Saturday in the National Post or any of the Post Media uh, newspapers throughout Canada. Fabulous. Well, thanks for listening to the Toronto Legends podcast. And on behalf of Jamie Gollenbeck, I am Andrew Applebaum saying mahalo.
Connie Teeson, the host of Broadcast Dialogue, the podcast. We focus on Canada and the challenges facing Canadian radio and TV, as well as highlighting those moving the industry forward from podcasting and streaming to new broadcast tech. Check us out at broadcastdialogue.com or your favorite podcast app. Come on a journey like no other where you will discover many roads that will lead you to a happier, healthier, and more stress-free life. And the beauty is, you don't need any vacation time for this adventure. The journey will come to you. Join Avery Rich on your very own journey into yoga. Along the way, she will demystify yoga poses and guide you into a yoga posture or short sequence, all in less than 15 minutes. You have nothing to lose but stress. The Journey Into Yoga podcast. It's not for people who like yoga. It's for people who don't like yoga. Follow or subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Amazon Music, or at AveryRich.com.